Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. Part of the reason we stay stuck is because we expect rainbows and unicorns to come flying down and oxytocin and serotonin to go flooding through. And it doesn't, it feels awful. So plan to be miserable before you're not and like come up with a survival plan. Hi, my name is Mark Groves, and I'm obsessed with understanding human behavior and why we do what we do. In this podcast, I interview the world's most brilliant minds and hearts, where I get to explore, alongside you, every subject you can imagine relating to our human experience and how we relate. It is my deepest intention that we all learn how to create the life and love that we've always dreamt of. Now, before we get rolling, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. And one ask that I have, and an amazing way that you can help support the podcast, is by wherever you listen to it, giving it a five-star review and a written review. With all that said, let's dive in and transform our lives. Britt, Frank, welcome. Hi, I'm so excited to finally have this talk. Thanks for having me. I... I'm already predicting that this talk is going to be earth shattering. So no pressure. Um, You wrote the book, The Science of Stuck. I'm sure that for almost everybody listening, there is some area that they are stuck in. And it feels to me like a common thing that people come to me with, or I see as a conversation, let's say on social media, is I don't know what to do. I don't know how to move through this. I don't know should I leave or should I stay or should I start the job or should I start the business or should I? So there's a science behind being stuck, which is nice because then at least we're like, no, but the science said that I'm supposed to be stuck. And it also tells us how to get out of it. So yeah, can you, where do we start with this? So yeah, I call the book, The Science of Stuck and not The Science of Trauma, because one, that word has gotten so buzzy and so mm-hmm. trendy. And so it, it's both overused and underused and misused. It's, it's just ridiculous. But people might not all identify as having trauma or a mental health challenge, but like there is no person with a pulse that does not know what it's like to get stuck with something. And I'm sure you hear this, the 
people that I see come in with their narrative. I'm lazy. I'm crazy. I'm just unmotivated. I'm cursed, whatever the thing is. It's like, no, there's actually a science behind the, you know, abandoned wish lists and dreams and goals and vision plan, all the things. And for me personally, it was a lot easier to just believe I was crazy you know, then to do the work of change. So when I learned that being stuck was something that could be changed, I was really unhappy about that at first. Like, no, 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 no. This is just who I am. Therefore, I have no responsibility to change. No, there's a science behind all of this stuckness. And to the, this is my disclaimer, to the degree that you have safety and access to resources, you can heal and grow and change. Like if you're in a systemic oppression, war-torn country, that's not the stuck that I'm talking about. I'm talking about people that have choices that have relative safety. Nevertheless, here we are. You're not doing the thing or you're doing too much of the thing. You can't start the thing. You can't stop the thing. There's reasons and we can change it. Why do you think that, because I could be, and this is true when I reflect back on my own life, that I was surrounded by choices, but I didn't feel like I had a choice. You know, like I felt Until I recognized, as you said, you wake up to the unhappiness of the reality that you could have chosen, but you keep not choosing, but you keep choosing and not choosing. And when I finally had the realization that I'd been making choices, but just so unconsciously, like, why is that, that we have the perception of no choice even though we are filled with a plethora of choices? It's such a paradox. Yeah. It's really important to me to not victim blame. So when I talk about we're making choices all the time, whether unconsciously or consciously, I've had people push back like, you're victim blaming. I'm like, listen, I smoked meth. I was in domestically violent relationships. I have childhood sexual abuse. I am not somebody who is going to say, no, you chose that and you manifested it. And therefore, so there's, there's some nuance that's needed when we're talking about choice. However, there were a lot of choices that I made, and I'm sure you made, largely because we're not taught about the brain. Like I was horrified to discover, and a lot of people don't know that you can be licensed as a psychotherapist, fully operational, and never once learn about the brain. Like that is a thing. You have to be a specialist to understand things about your nervous system and your amygdala. That is bananas. So we're all taught this framework of disease disorder and, you know, No, like there are reasons that we make the choices. It's not because you're choosing bad things. It's that if you don't know that your brain does brain things, you're going to unconsciously keep choosing into things. And that's not the quote that drives me nuts is, you know, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results is the definition of insanity. No, it's not. That's the definition (laughs) of trauma repetition. And that's how your brain is wired. That's funny because when you think about it that way, it is actually the definition of perceived sanity. Do you know what I mean? Like perceived control, perceived certainty. It is interesting that we get caught in this space of, like the other day I was doing, I was talking about the pattern of nice guy behavior. And I was just talking about how the pathology of it, it can have many pathologies, but that at the basis of it is people pleasing and the, the behavior as an adult is actually manipulative. It could be birthed from controlling parents, you know, all the different things. And I found the same reaction as people are like, a way to not be empathic to people who are in the fawn response. I'm like, oh my God. What's interesting is we want to protect people from the pain or the 
the hurt or emotion they might experience hearing me say that those behaviors are manipulative as adults. But we can have a behavior that is a survival strategy that comes from a healthy place that is not healthy. And we see overt things like if you develop control and aggression as a child to as an adaptive strategy, we know that, that is, if I said that's unhealthy, obviously it would be described as such. It's like the codependent part of us, again, wants to save people from misinterpreting what we say. Is that fair? Like, that's- I love that you named that because the paradox there is that in your effort to save people, you're actually disempowering them. Like if you need to save someone from having a hurt feeling, you are now putting the lens of brokenness on them. You've cast yourself as the savior and now we're off to the races with the guru cult situation. Like looking at my choices as choices is empowering. Looking at, I wasn't a nice person, but looking at the nice guy, nice girl thing as manipulation. I wasn't, that wasn't my default survival mode. (laughs) But like looking at my manipulation, what would have been called borderline personality disorder stuff was so empowering to know I wasn't being puppeteered by this demonic force. It was like, no, this is what's happening. An explanation is not an excuse, but like, here's what you're doing. Here's why. Oh, cool. As long as I was pathologizing my behavior, I never had to deal with it or change it. And that's a hard sell. Yeah, I remember before I really started diving into uh, family systems and things like that, it took a marriage of our mutual friend, Vienna Farron, uh, years ago, I remember her saying, like, how was your childhood? And I was like, it was great. And then she was like, Are you sure there's not something in there from because I was a people pleaser? And you can't be a people pleaser with Vienna Farron. And <laughs> she, she said, Are you sure there's not something in there? And I was like, No, no, it's great. And <laughs> that's a joke between us now. Uh, but what was interesting is I, I did have the realization that you don't actually have to understand the pathology of a behavior to want to change it. But I think what understanding the pathology does is it depersonalizes it. You know, it's like, how could I not become, and that's actually a fair thing to think, like, how could you not become assertive, aggressive, a people pleaser, an addict, a whatever, given the things you've been through and the lack of guidance and resources and wisdom and support to actually navigate those things in a healthy way, if that's even possible in some circumstances. What do you think about that? I agree with you. And I think that explanation really just trips a lot of people out and you get the clutching at pearls. Like that's an excuse and you're co-signing on suboptimal behavior. Like, no, if you look at the timeline, like this is like the, the physics principle an object in motion will stay in motion, right? Like a person living in a trauma timeline is going to do what someone living in a trauma timeline is going to do unless acted upon by an outside force. And it's not an excuse, but like you said, it helps to understand that there are patterns. We're not just little bubbles doing our thing independently of everybody else in their bubbles doing their thing. And it's empowering if you can see the patterns that you get the keys to changing them. But again, it's a hard sell to say, well, you know, you were destined to become an addict. It's not like this woo-woo mystery thing. It's if mom was an addict and dad was an addict and you grew up around addicts and this was the pattern, that doesn't mean everyone in every circumstance. But often it makes, I've never seen someone up close where I didn't go, oh, wow, well, it makes sense how we got here. Like, and Vienna, who is brilliant, can look at that too and go, I get why we're here. You're not crazy. You're not broken. This makes sense. And here's where we go forward. That compassion, I think, is what 
allows us to soften into the pattern. You know, and that idea that you don't need to know where it comes from to know you want to change a behavior, that context, I think, is what softens it. And then now our maybe, you know, and you could speak to this because I know you're also a somatic therapist and you were talking about how as a psychotherapist, you're not trained on somatics or the brain, which is really, it's interesting because when I did training in psychotherapy and stuff like that, I didn't think about, you know, at the time you're thinking about five flight freeze and then fawn and then uh, it really looking back was so incomplete. My coaching training, so incomplete without nervous system training. Like I actually think in a lot of ways, I think skipping talk therapy and doing somatic therapy feels like it bypasses the brain. What do you think about that? Cause you're trained in both and I feel I've, I've done all of them myself too. So I've had just these like radical quick changes from somatic therapy that I couldn't put words to and couldn't even come to through, I mean, I've done some seriously, you know, like with psychotherapists who call people on their shit, who know how to hide their shit on the deepest level of their psyche, which, hello. So I think we really need both because in a purely, and I love somatic therapy and I'm with you, I've seen 10 years worth of like growth and movement in just a few sessions versus, you know, I analyze and I think and all that. But the problem with only taking a somatic approach is people can use the body to bypass the mind. It's like, oh, I feel so in the my body. Side. Yes. I yeah. feel in my body, my liver is shifting to the left. I'm like, no, you're sad. Like, can, can we <laughs> not like you're sad. Let's just be sad. And on the other side, people who overanalyze at the expense of their body, I really think it needs to be both, um, for it to work sustainably. So then what is the, uh, somatic and psychological, uh, science of stuckness then? Like what's going on with us when we're in that state, just to give people some context and some compassion. Sure. Well, the fight, flight, freeze thing, which is also not taught in traditional psychotherapy, you know, what, people call lack of motivation. That's a freeze response. That's not because you have a poor mindset. Like, yes, mindset matters. But I think the science of stuckness is that all of the things that bother us about our behaviors have a physiological origin. And we all want to come up with this morality thing. Like I'm just a bad person or I'm just a lazy person. And if we kick the morality off of it and you look at the function of behavior, which is to keep us alive, right? Like our brains have been keeping us alive for a really long time and it works as evidenced by we're here having this talk. So if we look at the function of our behavior, we can change it. So the science of stuck in a nutshell is Take the narrative that it's you off the table. Let's look at what you're getting from it. What are the benefits? And then we can find better ways to get those needs met. Why do you think we moralize it? Like, why is there an inherent, because this seems to be pretty standard. You know, I think for anyone listening, it's like, I'm the problem. I'm this. I'm lazy. I'm, why do we self, because, you know, if we were objectively looking at a child's experience or our experience through our lives, We'd be like, oh, wow, that environment was a serious problem. I get that because I did it too. Yeah. For me, and I think many people, I had to pathologize my trauma so I didn't have to deal with it. Like saying it's just me is actually not real accountability. Real accountability is, yes, I am being manipulative. Yes, I am choosing this because of these reasons. Yes, I am using you to get said result. But it's just me. I'm crazy. I'm broken is a way to actually bypass 
real accountability. So it's like this false accountability. But I also think we're taught. We're taught to pathologize. We're taught to self-blame. We're all steeped in a culture of shame and guilt and lack of feelings literacy. So again, I'm not confused how we got here, but it's like if morality and mental health, like if putting morality on mental health works, people have been moralizing behavior like forever. And that's a very, you know, religious thing too. Like the sexual stuff is the worst stuff, you know, like this one's the least of the things. And this one, it's worse to to be a meth addict than a heroin addict or a sex addict. It's like, if we can take the morality off of the table altogether, we're going to be able to get to solutions faster because nobody changes who's buried in shame. Those are the people that end up either harming themselves or others or just walking around unconsciously because um, they don't have better information. Yeah. At the basis of all that trying to control behavior through the mechanization or weaponization of shame, you know, and then that makes sense because then as you said, at the root of so much of our cultural behavior is religious and religion loves to use the old guilt and shame. I would say it's not even guilt, it's shame. I mean, it's shame masquerading as Catholic guilt, quote unquote, or whatever. Um, okay, so how do we begin to move out of that? Like to know, like once we get to the understanding of where it came from, have compassion for it, how do we get unstuck? I'm with you, like we said, knowing patterns, having origin explanations, knowing our origin wounds is useful. But every single person that I have ever treated wants to start with why, you know, I, I need to understand why this is like this. And you you don't ask why a building's on fire. You get the people <laughs> out. Like, I'm not going to stand there and be like, I wonder what the origin of this fire is. And I wonder what the factors are and perhaps what the mitigate. It's like, get the people out of the damn building, like put the fire out first things first, and then we'll figure out what happens later. But when it comes to our stuckness, whether it's financial, relational, sexual, body image, it doesn't matter. Everyone wants to start with why. And that is not a good starting place when your brain's on fire. Start with why is great if you're launching a business. Like Simon said, like all of that yeah. stuff is great, <laughs> but we're not talking about launching a business or committing to a life vision or a mission. We're talking about your brain is on fire. Do not start with why. Instead, start with what are my choices? Because for someone who has two choice points, that's going to look a lot different than someone who has 20. And so before we can even figure out what to do, we have to start with what are your choices? Like you may want this to be a thing, but that's not a choice available to you right now. So let's not obsess about it. What are your choices? And then make your choice points so small. I call them micro yeses. That's my little sticky thing. Make them so a micro yes is the smallest thing you can do without your nervous system like flipping out on you. So if you think it's a small step and you're not doing it, it's because your brain thinks it's a big step. So we have to shrink these down to the microscopic level so our nervous system doesn't go into fight, flight, fawn, freeze. And then we can get moving. And we'll figure out why the building caught on fire later. I promise. Yeah, that makes sense. To be able to look back once you're in the clear. And then do the assessment of was it arson, whatever, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious when you think about your own life then, and we bring it to these circumstances, because, you know, you're not talking from like an academic tower where you've not lived any of this. Like you've been through it. Can you maybe give us some context for people where you were stuck and how you got to these choice points, these like micro yeses, what they looked like? Because you said like you smoked meth. So I'm curious, like, what's the next choice points as you move through all these things? Because you're, you're funny and your story 
you you bring levity to things that not everyone can bring levity to. And I think that's what allows people a window into the things they might have shame attached to because all of a sudden they're like, ha, 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 oh, <laughs> you know, so curious. I never thought that like my sordid history would be the thing that lends credibility to my current occupation, but here we are. Right. And the problem with the change process is this Hollywood narrative of you're this way. And then like the burning bush moment happens and the beam of insight hits you and then you change and then you never look back. And for people that have that story, like, yay, go you. I'm super happy. I've not met any of those people. The change <laughs> process. I haven't, I have never met someone whose change process wasn't a vortex to hell followed by a, a rapid spurt of, I got this. I'm good. Followed by NASC or this, this is too hard <laughs> totally. and meandering around. So I put in the book, one of my micro yeses with my meth addiction. Well, first things first, when you mix meth addiction and sex addiction, you, you have a lot of shenanigans that you have to. That untangle. sounds like a very, like it's a bad combo, like a good, sometimes good, but like a bad <laughs> before it's bad. It's like super good. That's why we get addicted. <laughs> but my micro yes, which is not something I'm going to live tweet or do an Instagram reel about. I was laying on my floor after being up for days. I was seeing things. I was paranoid. I was losing my mind. I called my sponsor and she's like, Britt, when was the last time you ate food? I'm like, Aah. she's like, okay. She sat on the phone with me for an hour talking me through putting the spoon into the yogurt into my mouth. That is a micro yes. It's and again, it's not like, look what I did. Yay, go me. But those were the little moments that kept me from going somewhere that I would not return from. Like those microscopic yeah. And I afterwards I didn't go, oh my God, what's wrong with me that all I'm doing is eating a yogurt. It's like, okay, I did one. If I did one, now I can do another. And that's what it looks like to go from stuck to unstuck. And it's not all the same pace. You know, it's like nature. We have periods and cycles of being static, being dynamic, being committed, being wholly uninvested, being energized, being completely apathetic. And all of that's normal. To be going through that cascade of different feelings and especially what comes when you start to get unstuck. I mean, there must be a cascade of emotion of... Like to me, it's increasing your capacity for possibility, which is such a different, like hope and possibility are such a different energy to hold when we've been living in catastrophizing and pain and these trauma loops. So yeah, can you speak to that more? Yeah. And I'm with you. And there's a somatic component, right? Because hope, possibility, creativity, those are all expansive energies. Those open, you can't be open to possibility without being open. And for someone that's locked down in trauma, any kind of trauma, for me, particularly with sexual trauma, the impulse was to close up and shut down. And so you cannot contain the energy of expansion or abundance or happiness or hope while your system is protecting you from being attacked. And so so we actually have to train our bodies to tolerate the sensations that come with being expanded. And it's not just a metaphysical concept. These are very practical physiological states. My system knew how to tolerate chaos. Like I knew that I was very comfortable in my chaos. I was like, thank you. I am good. I know all of the streets here. I'm fine. I know where all my turns are. And possibility was terrifying. Intimacy. Oh my God. I married a normie. My husband, we've married two years. <laughs> it's total normie. And he's normie. super supportive. But it's so weird just watching him sleep when he's tired and eat when he's hungry and you know when he's stressed. <laughs> it's so weird to me. Um, 
I had to teach my brain how to tolerate that stuff. Like he's happy. He likes to play games and he has friends and he does like activities and he it's weird. Um, my body really rejected. It's like if you've never eaten vegetables and you start eating raw broccoli, you're going to feel like crap. This is the same principle. I was thinking about this the other day of uh, like, it's amazing when you start to develop healthy self-worth, healthy sense of self, because all of a sudden there's a, a time though that this takes, but there is a moment where reliability is hot. And it's like a weird, because it's never been hot, you know, and all of a sudden someone's reliable and you're like, damn, like they That's do the what they say they're going to do. And like, I want to, I want to hit that, you know, like there's, <laughs> a, it's like boundaries. Like you, when someone has a boundary, although I think that's a faster turn on. Like if someone's like, no, that doesn't work for me. And we're like, what? Hello. Who are you? Teach yeah. me Yeah. But like for you, is it a constant learning of your system to, I love that you call your husband a normie, but is it like a constant reminding or is it become a thing that now your system's norm? You're a normie too. Are you a normie yet? Oh God, no, 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 no. <laughs> On no level am I a normie, <laughs> but I, I revel in my neurodivergence. I, I find that as a superpower at this point, but it's not. So the answer is yes. I still have to work every day to maintain myself, but the work is no longer a drudgery. Like defiant joy is part of my daily work. Defiant rest is part of my daily work things like that. So I don't think of them as work. There did come up. I mean, I still go to therapy. I still take meds. I still cry and puke when I have to deal with childhood things that get dinged in the present because that's how brains brain. It never fully is that you're never triggered again, but it's not the day, like the first couple of years, which were a grind of just keep, you know, chop the wood, carry the water, chop the wood, carry the water. It's not like that. Like my life's really fun. It's not perfect, but it's fun. And I, take a lot of pleasure in the work that I do now to maintain my life. Well, and everything that you've been through offers you such a window into all the different patterns and behaviors of the people that come to you and read your book, you know, that you're like, oh, been there, know that intersection, know it well, because you've walked the path. And I mean, I think of uh, just how much when we look in hindsight, you know, how sometimes from a serendipitous perspective, you can look back and be like, oh, this was all preparing me. You know, no one's ever written a book like you've written. And the reason no one's ever written it is because no one's ever written it through the experiences and the training, you know, and no one's walked the same path you've walked and the many paths. Because I mean, like you also joined a cult and that, that I'm sure for the listener is like, wait, what? Wait, so we got meth, sex, cults. Okay. But not a sexy meth cult, right? No. It's so funny because, again, we were chatting earlier. Cults are not all like the murder cults or the sex cults. Cults are everywhere. And in fact, you can look at social media and you're going to see the cult of fitness and the cult of wellness. I was a Long Island Jewish girl. So the best way to rebel to the highest degree was to move to the Midwest and become a fundamentalist Christian cultist. And so I like the, the really fringy <laughs> stuff. So I did. And people are like, well, wasn't that terrible? And I said, no, being quote brainwashed was the most important resting place on my path because wow, as yeah. damaged, and I don't recommend it. I wouldn't, re I wouldn't like <laughs> repeat it. I cringe when I think about some of the things I used to think and say and do, but 
that gave me a very brief respite from the chaos of my own head. Like I was just told what to do. It was a very toxic situation, but because there was no sex, murder, or meth, I did have a break from all of the swirling. And I was told, if you read this, wear this, think this, do this, you're going to be a good girl and we will love you. You will belong and you'll have sisters and brothers and mothers and fathers to take care of you. I had never had that before. Was it technically true? Yeah. So if you, I guess, believe this thing and comply, you will get love and belonging. So you're like learning love, conditional love, but at least you're there's predictability and reliability. Which is the appeal of cults, right? right? You don't have to think for yourself. Like In belonging, fact, that's, yeah. Yes, and it's not real. It's all counterfeit and it doesn't sustain. But I had never felt people being genuinely delighted to see me walk into a room. Now, granted, I had to be speaking this language and doing these things, but I had never experienced someone's face lighting up when they saw me. Like that just wasn't a thing. And in the cult, I got that. I eventually left because once you start thinking for yourself, that goes south very They're quickly. They're like, uh, I'm sorry, but you're not complying anymore. So all that love we gave you. Bye. Bye. Sorry, you were saying that it allowed your you to rest and then build it sounds like you were building like new neural pathways and all of a sudden there's space to think about things and not be in the sort of urgency, I guess, that the need for like addiction can bring. Yeah. I mean, I quit working. I moved there was a Midwestern branch and there was a Northern California branch and You chose you know, the Midwestern one over Northern California. That I is did. a I did rebellion both. against Long Island. That is it's the only so bad. Yeah. It's the only thing you could possibly do. I'm gonna move to Missouri. So yeah, watch <laughs> me do this thing. What did your parents say? They just sort of shook their head. I always been sort of the black sheep. So I think that was, oh look, there's Brit doing another Brit thing. And so not a lot of involvement, just some more head shaking and how long did you were you in the cult? There was a couple of years there. There wow. was a good and that was post addiction. No, that was mid-addiction. Oh, so were you doing meth there too? No. I had done pills, you know, just like, quote, the good drugs. This is this morality thing. You know, I was just doing opioids. Like what? Um, (laughs) And then the cult was the resting place. And then my sex and love addiction started ramping up. And so I followed. So people are like, how'd you get out? I'm like, I followed a boy out of there. And then that was when the meths kind of amped up my addiction cycle. Wow. Like what a thing to look back upon and be able to walk, know that you've walked yourself through all of these things. What was the common thread that made you susceptible to the cult or Because I think a lot of people project their own free will, you know, this idea like I would never choose that. Um, and I like Sam Harris's book, Free Will, because he talks about how if we traded lives with someone moment for moment and self for self, we would all choose exactly what they choose. But I'm curious, in your experience, what was the one common thread or if there was more than one? And then what do you see in other people that makes them susceptible to things like uh, addiction or... For me, it was the common thread was I did not want to know what I knew. Like, I think for a lot of people, there's this very, very icky, shadowy place in us where there is a piece of information that we need. And if we go, this is the, you know, the cave you fear to enter is the treasure you see, like all that Jungian stuff. But there were a lot of things about myself, about my childhood, about my life that I didn't want to know. 
And I pretended I didn't know. I even convinced myself for a long time that I didn't know. But to know what you know is really scary. So that was the first commonality. The second one was I did not want to accept that my chance at being a child was now over. Like I'm a big advocate of inner child and self-parenting and parts work. I love that. But when it comes to your, your chronological childhood on this earth incarnation of you, you get what you get, you got what you got. And if you didn't get it, you don't get it. And there's no repetition and there's no do-overs. And I wanted daddy and mommy to love me and feed me and take care of me. And I was willing to do anything to have that feeling. And once I quote, killed the fantasy of childhood, I was able to heal. Wow. That idea that we're like constantly chasing an experience. So we're resisting the truth and reality which then keeps us stuck because we're constantly fighting for the past instead of accepting what is true and then embracing or integrating what has been experienced in the now. Hmm. That's a powerful recognition for people to make. I have this really horrible, gross um, activity. I did it on myself sort of by accident. And now I do it with clients, not everyone, but for some. And it's like, have and again, I'm not talking about killing your inner child. Your inner child is with you always. And my inner children are fabulous and I love them and they're very active. But I went to a cemetery and took a little picture of me and did a eulogy and told this little precious girl. Like, it was awful. I could puke just talking about it. Like, I am so sorry that this is what you got. Like, and I'm so sorry that I can't ever undo this. And it's like, but we have to leave here now. And she didn't want to leave. She's like, no, maybe this time, maybe this time. And that's trauma repetition. Maybe if we try harder, maybe if we do this or that. And it was like, oh, sweet baby girl. No, like this is, this is where we have to leave childhood. Which is actually compassionate. Yeah. Like, wow, no, we got to let this go. It's horrible. I remember hearing the quote from, oh man, it's in a spoken word poem, but I think it's originally from a reverend. Um, but it, it is, uh, forgiveness is letting go of all hope for a better past. And I think that's a, there's a, a common misconception, I think, uh, somatically at least, I, I don't think it's conscious generally, which is that if you forgive someone, that's saying what they did was okay or what happened was okay. But you can forgive, you know, I say to people like, you forgive for yourself, not for other people. Like you're not letting someone else off the hook. You're letting yourself off the hook you're holding them to. The forgiveness thing is so, and again, it's been moralized and it's been weaponized. And I remember in the cult being told, you will, you know, if you don't forgive, God will destroy you. And it's like, oh, crap. Well, I don't want to forgive. <laughs> I forgive. I, I forgive. I forgive. <laughs> totally authentic. Totally real. Real talk. I forgive. I think I agree with you. I also think that the concept of forgiveness as we understand it is not the right concept because if you're talking duality, right, we've got forgiveness, which indicates there's blame. Like if there's no blame, there's no need for forgiveness. And if there's forget, so if you, again, this is a very Jungian concept of like the third path. So rather than focusing on either blame or forgiveness, if you focus on healing, you come to a place where both are irrelevant. Like if you ask me, do I forgive the people? people who sexually assaulted me. It's like that concept doesn't even make sense to me anymore. Cause I don't, I don't blame myself. I don't blame them. I don't forgive that. It's just not a, it, it doesn't make sense as a concept anymore. You make the whole dilemma irrelevant and it becomes something else completely. So I think a lot of people shame themselves and berate themselves in their effort to forgive when it's like, we got to put so much you into the you tank that this situation becomes so much less relevant that it's just not a thing. 
What a powerful reframe to go from like, how do I figure out how to not hold blame and I got to forgive? And of course, the parts of us are like, fuck that, fuck them, fuck this. But to actually not even do that, like to move towards this place of healing where you're not thinking about having to make these choices or do this task that isn't even actually, when you say it, that's actually not the task, which is really, that's powerful. What truth did you know that you didn't want to accept? My sexual abuse as a child. I pushed against that one. I blocked it out. I repressed. I projected. I did all the Freudian classic defense mechanisms. I was just not okay with that being my truth. So I outsourced it and I found partners to, you know, represent perpetrators and all the things that happen with that. But I really did not want to know that my childhood was not good because I actually thought I had a good childhood. Bless my little heart. Until I was in my mid twenties where a therapist was like, Brett, honey, no, like that's not normal. Cause I never talked about it. What was the moment when you actually like felt that truth come forward and be held like you could hold it? Uh, Again, I wish I had like a, here was the insight, but it was, can I go, okay, trigger warning. I'm going to talk about a graphic situation. It was later on, it was during the sex meth addiction mess. And we had gotten, my partner at the time, we got into a huge fight and it got to the point where like, had he not passed out, I would have not survived. There was like strangulation trauma, like the whole mess. And I remember, and this was the moment where I left that relationship. And I'm like, I picked him because of them. Like I knew enough to know no, no, no choice gets made in a vacuum. And it was like, he made sense to me. And again, this wasn't like a conscious, let me sit here and journal and meditate. It was, I was dragging myself to the door going, holy crap. Like I picked him because of them. And all of the things that were going on in this and other relationships like this and the repetition of the behaviors were because it was familiar. And that was when I was like, oh no, oh no, 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 no. Yes. So when, because you were talking like you haven't met a person that the world wasn't burning, that they've then figured that was your, one of your yeses to get to that door, to like walk out that door in that relationship. What a shift. Was that a monumental shift for discernment, like the recognition of self and power and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, it wasn't linear, but if there was a, if I had to pick like a pivot point, it was walking out that door and it was, okay, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to address all of the things about me that I am terrified. Like I, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to share about it. I'm going to feel about it. I will do whatever I need. And again, I was fortunate that I had access to really good help. There's a place in Arizona called the Meadows and I was able to go get some treatment there. And they are like the mothership for all things somatic and internal family systems and trauma. And I don't think I would have, like that was a lamppost place for me. And then from there, I was able to take a few more steps, a few more steps and cobble together my life. And then, you know, once the thing about getting healthy and happy that no one tells you is all your friends go away because people that benefited from your less than optimized self don't celebrate with you when you start to get healthy and happy. So I had to burn down what was left standing. Not everyone needs to do that. Mine is kind of fringe like that. But I burned everything to the ground and started over. And it was humbling and it was awful. And it was like waiting tables and, you know, selling things so I could eat and figuring out, again, whatever. It was like, fine, 
I, I will do whatever I need to do and whatever is available to me. And I was, again, fortunate that I could. Not everyone can. I mean, it is wild when we start to make decisions that are not aligned with the values of the people we've been surrounding ourselves with. That's why I think we're so drawn to that quote that the five closest people in our lives represent our values. And and that can be a very confronting quote because I think we're better at being somewhat objective about the people around us and observing their toxic behaviors uh, or the choices they're making or the way they're relating to substances. You know, I think it's people can understand something as simple as smoking. It's like the moment you quit smoking, if a lot of your friends smoke, which is probably likely, then all of a sudden they're like, hey, what are you, what are you doing? Do you want to go for a smoke? Oh, you don't do that anymore. And we start to be reflective of the choices they're not making. And that becomes a confronting mirror of what is possible for them that you're now standing in. And that became sort of a lighthouse for me was that I think it's a, Marianne Williamson, who has that quote, like, no one benefits from you playing small. Like, there's no, and it's it's much more vast of a quote, but it's like, you're a child of God, da, 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 da. And I find that quote just so empowering because on a deeper level, you know, I think of other truths that we tend to not live or embrace till we do, which is the immense power that we have with choice. Like, Choice itself, and I quote this a lot, but Alan Watts has a quote where he says, when you wake up to conscious choice, you become the God you were taught to praise. I love that quote because, you know, even if you believe God is something to, but I'm like, when you actually live that or embody that, now you can create, I don't want to say anything because people would be like, well, you can't dunk if you're 5'4", but yeah, okay, I get it. (laughs) You need to work on your negativity person. But... (laughs) Yeah, there's something about that truth of of like reconnecting. Because for you, was accepting the truth about your childhood then the gateway or an access point to accepting the truth about like your essence and your power and your, like, did they live in the same place or like hang out? You know, <laughs> I don't know how to say that. That's a really good question. So I think just the acceptance of a traumatic childhood without an understanding of essence is going to be crushing. It's like, great, my childhood was not good. And now I have all of these scars of sexual trauma. Cool, cool story. Oh, well, now what? And I don't know. I didn't study it at the time. I, I didn't have language for it. But I did have this knowing once I was able to own my choices, that is going to come with a very deep sense of existing. Like people are worried if they start having a good life, they're going to become narcissists. It's like narcissists are not full of self. Narcissists are completely absent of self. But the more acceptance that that opens a crack for yourself, your actual capital S self to be with you online. And those two things have to run in tandem. Like the acceptance of truth, coupled with a knowledge of self like otherwise you're kind of screwed that's beautiful because in order to access one you access the other and vice versa they're like a symbiotic Mm -hmm. yeah and if you can't accept the truth you can't change the present and that i think is often where we have so much resistance is you were talking about like when we're fighting reality we spend our lives fighting reality instead of creating in this moment 
is so for people listening who are in that space of like, okay, I'm ready to get out of this. And you talked about micro yeses. What else can we do to continue to move through this? So practically, it will help to not gaslight yourself out of trauma. You know, I appreciate that people have perspective on privilege and access, but to say I have no right to call this trauma because it could have been worse or it wasn't as bad, like your refusal to heal your trauma doesn't help the person down the street who's having a rough time. So perspective on your your resources is great, but perspective allows for multiple things to coexist, including they had a lot less choice and I have a lot of options and I am in pain and my heart is shattered and I need help, like all of the things being equal. So rather than argue with yourself over, well, it shouldn't be traumatic, like forget about what you call it. That's why I use the word stuck because people get so hung up on the language. Like, right. Forget about what it is. You're like I can accept I'm stuck. You're stuck. And no one has a problem with the word stuck. Like forget trauma, forget all of that. Like, let's just start with you are stuck. And this concept of time, I'm going to go super meta here, keeps us really stuck. Like time's not real. So when people are like, I'm just going to leave the past in the past. Okay, well, that doesn't make any sense because you encode your history and your nervous system. So like every cell, organ, and tissue is carrying your narrative. So there's no such thing as the past. Like your past is here with you and you actually can't get to what we call the present if you're still living as if everything in the past were still happening, which is what your brain does. So to even begin to get to mindfulness or presence or groundedness or whatever, we have to start with like, you, you can't outrun your, your story. Even if you don't remember it, you don't need to have memories. Your body knows all the things. So if you're wanting to go from stuck to unstuck, let's start with the past, not in the past. It's in your body. You don't need to know why you're stuck to get unstuck and childhood is over and no one's coming to save you. And that's good news. That's the other piece. It's not like a doomsday thing. No one's coming to save you. Awesome. That means that you are now empowered (laughs) to the degree you can to now own your life. Like I had no idea being an adult was so freaking awesome because all the adults around (laughs) me sucked. Like it's so much more fun being grown, but no one was modeling that. So I didn't want to, but like being grown is awesome. Um, that's such a great way of thinking about it. Yeah, I th- it's funny that culturally we make fun of quote unquote adulting, but there is something liberating about being a responsible adult, which I personally, when I witness culture, I find that we, and Francis Weller talks about this, that you know, he's a psychotherapist and calls himself a soul activist, which I really love. And he's very, you know, much into the young and all that stuff. And he talks about how we're an adolescent culture. Like we have not gone through the initiation, through the maturation, maturation, maturation process. And when I think we realize that, like who's fucking driving this car? Like, right? And it's like, but up until this point, I've been sitting in the back seat watching people call who call themselves adults acting like children. So it is like an act of radical revolution to be an adult like a full-fledged adult. And that doesn't just mean like paying taxes and getting a serious job. It means like taking full responsibility for how you show up to your life and what you say yes to. And I think when you can accept what you say yes to, that you're saying yes to it, now you can say no. Holy, which, as we said earlier, is super hot. (laughs) No is hot. I mean, come on. For, does your husband say no? It's so strange. Yeah. And, and not when he explain, does, are you no like, apologies. 
yeah, like, come on, baby. Like, let's go. I can go. see Kai if I'm like, no, that's not okay, or like, whatever it is. She'll be like, hmm. And I'm like, ooh, let's get in. Marvin Gaye starts playing. <laughs> <laughs> that's how it's we hot. have Jasper, um, <laughs> which is my son's name for anyone listening. Okay, so as we move from this place to unstuck, what will we experience somatically and psychologically or just in general? So again, like making a good decision doesn't feel good. And this idea that now that you have decided to make good choices, therefore you should get a flood of dopamine. Like, no, smoking meth will give you a flood of dopamine. (laughs) Making good choices feels like shit. And so, like, part of the reason we stay stuck is because we expect rainbows and unicorns to come flying down and oxytocin and serotonin to go flooding through. And it doesn't. It feels awful. So plan to be miserable before you're not and oh, like come up with a survival plan. Like we all, we know how the brain works. As soon as you make a change, you're going to go through detox. You're going to have probably 21 days of post-acute withdrawal where you're going to feel like, like dying every day. Come up with a game plan because the period between I've made a good a decision, I've made a good decision and now I have a good feeling is where everyone stays stuck because it feels so bad. So we need to be able to stay the course. It feels really good, but first it feels really bad. It feels horrible. I remember, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I pretty much played whack-a-mole with my addictions. And for anyone who doesn't know, that's that game where gopher heads pop up and you try to hit them and then they fucking pop up somewhere else. And then you never win the fucking prize at any of those places. But I remember when the first addiction I really consciously ended was chewing tobacco. And that was just literal, you know, I had nicotinic receptors that were in a plethora. And when I didn't chew tobacco, much like smoking, they didn't get fed. And then it felt like I was dying because I had to sit in this very uncomfortable space of not getting what I wanted. And that ironically was also mirroring what I had unprocessed. But then it led to then looking at alcohol and then booty calls. Like, I got to tell you, when I consciously chose not to text to get intimacy, I remember just sitting there with my phone being like, like, why does this hurt so much? Like, this doesn't make sense, you know? But there's like this intimacy is treating, arousal was treating parts of myself that I couldn't sit with, not being chosen, being hurt, betrayals that I hadn't processed. And that 21 days, it was probably around that. But what got recoded was, and what I find, because you were saying, it's not like a light, you just do it and it's done. Like the, I, I was stuck and now I'm unstuck. I just find that you find other places where stuckness exists and you're always growing. So you're like moving out of what is, what is now. And what I found was that I no longer desired alcohol, things like that, because I started to fall in love with the present moment. So I'm Curious, is there like a science to that? Is there, and and can you speak more to where you've gotten to? And I I don't know if it mirrors what I'm talking about in any way. Um, But yeah, can you speak more to that? I love, love, love what you shared about that, how arousal was treating, like it's so, I haven't heard it put like that. It's so well said. So, I mean, the science of detox and withdrawal is out there and people think detox is only for hard drugs. It's like anything that your brain is 
habituate anything your brain's used to having. If you stop having it, you're going to have a physiological, it's not a mindset problem. It's not a willpower problem. You are physiologically going to go through withdrawal. And if you look on YouTube, I don't know if this, these are still there, but there used to be people that would video themselves coming off of hard drugs so you can see the withdrawal process. And granted, that's a very extreme, like you need medical attention for those. You don't always need medical attention, but it helps to have a visual. Like that, whether or not you're experiencing that to that degree, that's what's happening to you. And so it's important to name what's happening to you so you can cope with it. So that's the science of that the reality thing. part. Yeah. And what you said about falling in love with the present moment, the present moment is the only place where you exist. So to fall in love with now is to fall in love with your existence and who you are. And when you start to connect with all the parts of yourself, I won't say that I never want, like, I don't have any, you know, it's, it's not hard for me to not do drugs, but I do have like a, I kind of wish they weren't so bad for you because oh. like they're super fun. Yeah. If I like, gave any impression that I wouldn't love to <laughs> smash a good scotch, I a hundred percent would. And you know, and I the drugs I did were like weed every once in a while. I never got into any others. And the reason I didn't is because I knew if I did, I'd still be doing them. Like I knew that cocaine for me, I was too susceptible to things. But alcohol was because it's so socially acceptable because it's how people connect. I remember watching this guy give a talk who had given up alcohol and drugs. He was a former investment banker. And he, I remember he asked, I was in the audience at this personal growth conference and he said, what is the thing that's most important to you? And I remember being like, oh, like connection. And he said, what is the thing that you've missed out on most due to your addiction? And I was like, oh, connection. Fuck. Like the thing I miss, I most passionate about and and love I'm actually bypassing and not even fully present for like I've just brought so much grief to me but the good kind the kind that cooks you know the kind that's like hey like you got to pay attention yeah that was uh that was it's when you get hit by those truths that you're like oh I can't undo this and if I want to undo this it means I got to go deeper into the addiction and not only that, but then because everyone, again, going into this like polarity binary thinking of I hate the parts of me that use drugs and I hate the parts of me that chose to do really terrible things when they were in their active addiction. But and again, I'm not excusing behavior. Take accountability for your behavior. Make amends. Do what you need to do. I am saying that you have to fall in love with those parts of you, too. The ones that made the really hard choice. I don't need to love your bad part, quote, bad. There are no bad parts. That's Dick Schwartz's work. But like, I don't need to love your protective parts that shows X, Y, and Z, but I do need to love mine. Like, it's my job to love the shadowy, like super icky parts of myself. And then when you get to know them, they're like, oh, like they're actually pretty awesome if properly tended to and not left to their own devices. It was never their job to protect me from the world. That job is mine. And then you release them from having to do things like drugs and sex and whatever. And then you have access to all their energy. It takes a tremendous amount of energy to stay dissociated, disconnected, addicted, distracted. Well, energy doesn't just go away. Once you unburden those parts of you, now you have so much energy. Like, it's insane. And that's where you can start building and expanding and growing and opening to possibility and then have the energy to do it. So by adulting, you liberate those younger parts of you to free them up. 
and then now they have creative expression, they have energy that feeds to you, you have to vitality. One thing I wanted to ask about what you said about the present moment, and previously you talked about how the past isn't in the past, like it's encoded in the cycles, right? Like the trauma loops, the the way, the stuckness. And then you talked about, well, to be in the present moment, to be fully in it, by integrating these parts of ourselves, by integrating the loop, dealing with the the stuff that keeps us in the loop, we then are free to be, can you share more about that? Yeah. I mean, if I had parts that used dissociation to take me out. So like if I was dissociated, I didn't even need drugs to be dissociated. I have lived in a perpetual dissociation from early childhood. My family used to make fun of me. Like, where's Brit? She's gone. And you know, like you could clap in front of my face and I was just not there. But if you're not here, then you're not here. And then doing drugs and making choices to further take myself out created like a hologram me. And you can't, if you're a hologram person, you can't receive authentic connection or authentic, like you can't love something that's not there. And so the scary part of existing is that's where all the pain is. But the good thing about existing is that's where all the good stuff is too. What drew you because you uh, went through all of this, you uh, went, did internal family systems, became a psychotherapist, and then you became a somatic therapist. And it, it seems to me like a lot of your work is also inspired through like the spiritual aspect of psychology, like Jungian work. So I'm curious, what was the appeal to you of, of that work? Well, okay. So I think spirituality gets a lot of, it's not religion. Spirituality is anything that you're connected to that's not you, or that feels like is part of some, the part of something bigger. And it can be God and it could be religion, or it could be like cooking or art or whatever your thing is. Spirituality is where you get connected, but spirituality is also who you take your orders from. And so for most of the fawn response is a type of spirituality where I believe if I people please, I am now bowing to this. And again, it's not conscious, but like if I'm taking my marching orders from a, a childhood narrative that unless I do X, Y, and Z, no one will love me. That is my spirituality. So I don't think people necessarily need religion, but I don't think integration can happen without spirituality of some kind because it's a spiritual dilemma and a physiological dilemma and a psychological dilemma. So like for every like level that there's fuckery, you need a solution. So like, it can't just be psychological. It can't just be somatic. It can't just be spiritual. You need every level of injury to have an equal and opposite level of healing for integration to happen. Yeah. It's almost like, um, the path to that healing brings you to the experience of spirituality or it, it, it may be in a deeper sense. And I, I might be languaging this wrong, but it feels like that longing is to something greater. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day. His name's David and he's a founder of um, Mana. And he was talking about how when we get to such a level of light, like the level of being, that you actually can't harm another in any way, not consciously, because you actually feel the pain of what that is. And, you know, I think we understand that in psychological or personality language is empathy. And I like the idea that on a deeper level, you're actually sensing the resonance of your being and the way you are and the way other people are because you're actually operating on an energetic 
level rather than, and I, that can show up and just, and be described through science and behavior patterns and all that kind of stuff. But there is something deeper in my experience that you're feeling into. And I think sometimes that mystery, we're so attached to the intellect, especially in the Western world, that the idea of there being a mystery, although we know that to be true, I think on a deeper level, um, the idea of going to it is like not following the science or like trusting the thing, you know, I think is it Brene Brown who has that quote, like if it, it can't, she talks about it in her talk, if it can't be measured, it doesn't exist. We just don't have the way to measure some things. Yes. Yeah. The arrogance of humanity that if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist is the, <laughs> the irony. Um, Britt, what is the number? And you don't have to give just one, but it, like, what would be your like, you think are the top most important things for someone to not just have a tremendous relationship with themselves, but also to bring that and create a powerful relationship with other. So I do have a number one and it's not mine. I wish I had come up with it. It's M. Scott Peck's from the Roadless Traveled. And he talks about mental health being a commitment to reality, no matter what. And so I sort That's of- good. It's so good. I so wish my shadow parts are like, eh, we didn't come up with that. We suck. You should like quit. Whiting out his name. <laughs> <laughs> Britt Frank. Yes. Um, you know, I think a commitment to your truth at all costs. And sometimes the cost is really, really high. Yeah. But I don't think anything works without first and foremost a fundamental commitment to what's true about you for you. And how are you going to make any decisions that are in alignment if you're not honest with yourself? Doesn't mean you have to vomit on everyone your truth, but like and truth is subjective. So my truth doesn't have to be yours. My spirituality doesn't have to be yours. But if you're not first connected with what what do you know that you wish you didn't know but you know as a starting place? really cool things will spring from that. I mean, all the good things that we have come from gross places, right? Like fertilizer is poop and, you know, like things grow in icky, damp, wet, gross places and including our happiness and our joy and our connection and our love and our belonging. It, it starts in the muck. Yeah. You said earlier that quote of like the place you're most afraid of is also where the treasure dwells. I think so much of that, that that like the thing you're afraid to acknowledge is actually the path to your liberation, which <sighs> is, I know, I fucking hate that that's true. Shit. And yeah. as much as I still continue to psychologically try to get out of that truth for fear of the discomfort it's going to bring me in my life, it just continues to be true. Well, Britt, I can fucking talk to you all day. You're so fun. <laughs> um, for people listening... Where can they find more of you? Where can they get the book? Where can they listen or watch you and do all the things? This was one of the most fun conversations I've had in a hot minute. So Same. thank you so much. Yeah, I could easily go on for another hour or five. So you can find me on my website, scienceofstuck.com. Uh, my Instagram is just my name at Britt Frank. And you can buy my book wherever you buy books. It has been such a pleasure and such an honor. And I look forward to having you back on again. Thank you so much. Bye. 